And now, without further ado, strike two. That was an unfortunate rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean to do it. Or so fortunate. (laughs) True. I mean, I do love it. (laughs) Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Candace, Patricia Bergen. Carl would end someone. He would legitimately end them. So if someone wants to shave my legs, I would be open to it. Please do not freaky Friday me with Miller Redfield. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season three, episode four, strike two. Hi, everyone. It's Lauren. And this is Jesse. We are recording this from the future. You're welcome. We recorded the strike episode right after the strike. So it was a yes. bit ago. Yeah. <laughs> and now we have a little bit of a preview of what's to come for season three. Yes, we're very excited. And you can tell by uh, some of the lengths of our recaps of our episodes how excited we got to talk about season three, which is going to, I think, positively affect your listening schedule. Yes. The next couple episodes after Strike 2 are probably our most requested episodes and our favorites. Mm -hmm. So they will be two-parters. Now, we usually drop episodes Mm bi-weekly. But what we're going to do is for these two-parters, which we have done previously in the past, is uh, to not disconnect you from finding out what happens, is instead of (laughs) dropping the two-parters bi-weekly, we will be dropping the two-parters weekly. This way, also, it doesn't mean that you spend an entire month listening to us talking about only one episode. Yeah. Maybe you're one of the people that this is not the episode that you like, and therefore you would get another one directly the week after the two-parters. Yes. And then after those three episodes, we'll be going back to our usual biweekly drops for one continuous episode. Yes. So for your minds, the easiest way to think of this is that you will still get a new episode every two weeks. Just some of your episodes will take place over two weeks. Exactly. So really, we're not changing much. (laughs) Nope. We're just talking more and being extra excited. But we hope you join us for that because we really have a wonderful time talking about these episodes. We've been waiting, y'all. We've been waiting. And just as a reminder, you can watch the full episode. The link is on our website. Hi, everybody. We did not time this, that our episode we were supposed to record uh, when the strike happened was about a strike. You know, the universe, (laughs) she's a sassy, clever little gal. (laughs) She is. She was like, I think that your episode should be thematic. And man, did we find a lot resonating. Yes. How have you been these months that we've been away? Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for the notes and the support on social media. And we just, it meant so much to us that you were with us, even though we couldn't be with you. We really appreciated you understanding and enthusiastically understanding, understanding why we went on the hiatus we did and supporting the strike efforts themselves, both the WGA and the SAG after strikes. It's really heartening for us, especially those of you, we know we have a lot of listeners who uh, work in the industry or have been in the industry before, but it really meant a lot to us, our listeners who are not part of this industry to understand and just unquestionably support. It's, we're very used to other people not understanding what it's like sometimes and to have you just take us at our word and do the research and support us and our fellow artists. It just, it was incredible. It gave me a lot of hope. Yeah, me too. And now we're back to talk about a strike on Murphy Brown 
after we had a strike of I feel like what we did energetically is we we got everyone primed and ready for the first strike of Murphy Brown. And then leading up to this one, everyone was like, oh, yeah, Murphy's striking. We're striking. The the gang is ready. Oh, I like that. That was good. Yes. And um, for those of you who are listening in order, this episode is called, as you heard a moment ago, Strike Two, because it is the second strike. The first episode that dealt with the strike was about the crew. And this is about creative, which is also really amazing because obviously WGA and SAG-AFTRA, both creative outlets, uh, much like with the anchors are of our Murphy Brown gang, they're on camera. And so this really seems perfectly timed for what just happened. Now, a lot of the big sticking points for SAG-AFTRA was money, residuals, being paid a proper wage, and not just for the actors who are movie stars, right? And that's something that Frank talks about in this episode. They're striking for the little people. It's not just sort of for them. And to have that support is very important. You know, a lot of people don't realize that only 1% of the Screen Actors Guild actually does work consistently. Yes. That's the, the most important thing is to conversations that I had with people in person over these months was the fact that the people that you think are movie stars, the people that you think of when you think of professional actors that are the big names that show up, you know, have a, a big arc on a TV show or in the MCU or you you know immediately by face and name. That is not the majority of SAG-AFTRA and that is not who the strike is for. The fact that they are speaking up and supporting the strike is so important because they are understanding that they are part of a guild. They are part of a union. They are part of a larger effort. And you know, one of the things that I thought was the most important going into the strike was the conversation of residuals. The reason that is such an important conversation is that that has changed with streaming. Mm-hmm. The the we can go into more depth about this at some point, but the the contracts with streaming are left over from the early days days of web series and web episodes yep. that were supporting network television. So when we look at things that are fully hosted on streaming, people are not being given the means to make ends meet the way they would have before. And residuals don't work the same. They don't get re-aired the same. They don't, these are, they're being contracted under the same thing as your favorite viral YouTube web series that people had to have full-time jobs to do. So it's, it's very, it's very complicated and it's very important because people aren't looking to take more than what's owed them. They're looking to just make their ends meet and not worry every time they don't have work the next day. This episode is written by Scott Coffer, who would go on to write for Gilmore Girls and Boston Legal. Two notoriously quippy shows. Yes, and directed by Barnett Kelman. It aired October 15th, 1990. Yeah, so welcome Scott, Mr. Freelancer. As we've explained on the show before, pretty much is when a freelancer writes a script, they're not in the room necessarily. So the whole writing staff does throughout the week work on the script. So it's definitely a group effort. So before you launch into the description of the the opening, I thought we might talk about the music. Yes, This is our first non-Motown, correct? I don't think it's our first non-Motown, but it's definitely like... I would call it the biggest departure. Yes, that's a bet. I like that better. It's the biggest departure. It feels the most non-Motown. Because <laughs> we've had Aretha Franklin, but like technically, you know, Atlantic, not Motown. Mm-hmm. But you're right. This definitely feels the most departure. And I was quite shocked when I looked it up. 
Yes. So the song is Working in the Coal Mine, which I always thought was working in a coal mine. So thank you for the correction uh, research. If you hear that title, I'm sure you're already singing it to yourself. It's a very famous song. It's been used in a lot of references. So Working in the Coal Mine is a song, music and lyrics by American musician and record producer Alan Toussaint. The original hit was the international hit that recorded by Lee Dorsey in 1966. Uh, it also has been famously recorded by other musicians, including Devo in 1981. This is a, a song that's about the suffering of a man who works in a coal mine. He rises before 5 a.m. each morning, five days a week. The conditions are harsh and dangerous, but it's the only option. It is a working man's song. He repeatedly asks the Lord, how can this go on? He complains that he's too exhausted to have fun on the weekends. And it notably has the sounds of pickaxes yeah. clinking so as cool. if the musicians were working in the mine. It's a really like, it's a really unique song that stands out when you hear it. And it gets also gets stuck in your head. It's a good earworm. Uh, but I know that you had some information about Alan Toussaint. Yes, I've recently become familiar with Alan Toussaint through being a fan of Elvis Costello and realized going back that actually I had seen him perform at a benefit for Katrina and Madison Square Garden because he lost his studio in oh, cool. Katrina and really had to sort of change. He lived, he had to move to New York. It's a really interesting story. And I want to say that for people who are fans of Alan Toussaint, I am not going to be able to talk about the entire breadth of his career. It's fair. There's so many songs that you may not realize that he worked on, but I would like to sort of give our audience a little small little taste of who he was, a real legend in New Orleans particularly, and also people who are more familiar, I think, with uh, R&B and folk in, in 1970s music. For example, in the New York Times, they said that he was the soft-spoken embodiment of the city's musical tradition, revered as one of the master craftsmen of this 20th century American pop, and the pantheon of New Orleans music people from Jelly Roll Morton to Mahalia Jackson to Fats Domino. He was also a longtime producer of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. But what's interesting is that he worked up right until the end. He actually passed away in Spain right before a concert, a sold out concert. He started in the 1950s wow. um, where he was discovered by Fats Domino's producer. And then he really was sort of behind the scenes. He started Sea Saint Studios, which is unfortunately the studio that was lost in Hurricane Katrina. He not only worked with LaBelle, Dr. John, people like Paul Simon, Robert Palmer, he was in his sort of small little niche, but what we might consider sort of more mainstream pop at the time became very interested in working with him because he was just so amazingly talented. And I think a lot more people, unfortunately, might know his work through them. The Rolling Stones. In 77, Glenn Campbell recorded uh, his song Southern Nights. As I mentioned, you know, he started working a lot with Elvis Costello, which is how I became a fan of his. In 98, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And what's sort of also interesting is that, you know, the second half of his life sort of changed where he became more of a performer, you know, wore very sort of flamboyant costumes, really, really enjoyed being on stage. You know, he'd sort of been kind of like either, you know, a behind the scenes person in terms of just the writing and producing or in terms of just like playing the music in the background. Even the first song he recorded was sort of dubbed over by Fats Domino. It was meant to be like a track, right? Like he just wrote these sort of amazing songs. Joe Cocker, Etta James, also people that were influenced or he worked with. So also I think is interesting is that Katrina, although being so devastating, really kind of changed his career because that's when he began performing in at Joe's Pub a lot in the East Village because he didn't have a home anymore. He was sort of, you know, sort of transplanted to New York City. In 2013, he was awarded the National Medal of Arts uh, at the White House. 
and I've listened to some interviews with him. He seemed like such a lovely, fun, energetic person who just loved music so much. I definitely recommend that you take a longer look at his work in a way that I just can't do today. Elton John talked about meeting him as if he'd met the Dalai Lama. Mm. Yeah, I was really excited when uh, you said you had some information on him because I, I had looked at the working in, working in the coal mine. I'd looked at the the song and then that led me to go click on it, just be like, oh, I wonder what she's going to talk about. I did not realize what an impact he had on so many things that I enjoy. Right. Yeah. And now, now I can't unsee his name everywhere. Yes. It's, it's right? really cool. It's really cool. And um, I just saw Elvis Costello in concert and he did one of the songs that they wrote together live. It was really great. Oh. Yeah. Oh, what a good concert. Oh, it was so great. This music accompanies the opening of the episode, right, Lauren? Yes, we do. We have this song to, even though it's, as you've mentioned, talking about working in a coal mine, it's supposed to talk about the idea that of working as a reporter, that it's hard work and all the things that you have to do. And we have sort of a montage of season one and two, although we have one scene from last week of Frank going into the bank. But pretty much it's Jim, Corky, and Frank in the field in different episodes. Uh, Jim getting beat up and it's how you play the game, which is perfect. We should always relive Charlie Kimbrough's physicality at any time that we can. We should always relive it. <laughs> Seriously. And also importantly, scenes from the last strike episode, just to remind people in season two, the crew went on strike and all chaos and havoc it went down. When I saw the title of this episode, I was like, oh, strike two. I was like, oh, that's funny because strike two, you know, strike three, you're out. Yeah. So here we are. And then, I, then it, it also reminded me, I was like, oh, we have done a strike episode before. It just, uh, I I love the show. That's all I'm going to say. Please continue. So then we cut to the bullpen. It is the morning meeting. Miles is anxious and upset that Murphy is late, as per usual. Um, he wants the whole gang to wait by the elevator, just looking at their watches, which, of course, in comic timing means that Murphy comes right out of her office to see Miles at the elevator and accuses him of being late. <laughs> she, he really needs to work on that. <laughs> She's so excited because she has a story. I also need to pause for a moment to talk about something frivolous and the fact that Candace Bergen now has what I would call official season three hair. She sure does. No, the hair has arrived. It's very sleek. I find it very interesting that we're going from like, she had that sort of perm in season two, which feels sort of very 80s. And now we're going into sort of the mm -hmm. sleekness of the 90s. Um, not that we didn't have curly hair in the 90s, but I feel like this just is a very quintessential Murphy Brown look to, I think, how most people know her. Yes. I also, we're in that time in the early 90s where we still have like the echoes of the poofy curled bangs, but they're more up and they're being kind of combed and sprayed back into the rest of the hair. It reminds me of a teacher I had growing up where she would do that. And I always thought, as opposed to the Farrah Fawcett feathering mm -hmm. of hair, it genuinely to me looked like bird feathers because you would have these these layers and waves that used to be big and curly in the front. And now they're just kind of trying to incorporate them back into the sleek look. And she the, the team that does that to her hair is so good. So it good. looks so cool. I, do, I don't know how anyone recreates that in real life, but she looks so good. <laughs> And she's blonder, right? I think there were some highlights. Yes, highlights. Okay, I love it is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it looks, uh, speaking of people looking incredible, <laughs> jumping a second forward, but Faith Ford and Corky need to be in that red way more often. Oh, everyone, yeah. That red shirt with the like burgundy red scarf, that color is incredible. I know we see her in a lot of blues and teals and more of the like, I would say the the bridesmaid-esque colors of the late 80s, early 90s, but that like 
that deep, deep saturated red looks so good. There was a TikTok where a girl was saying she wanted to look like 80s vintage for prom. Mm-hmm. And she was asking how she goes about doing that. And this incredible uh, Gen X woman jumped in and was like, here's the deal. There are two different 80s. There's early 80s, which is like soft with like the lace and the kind of, I call it like almost shepherdess style, like frothy lightness yeah. and pastels. And then you have late 80s. And then you have like intense colors, sharp lines, yeah, yeah, highly yeah. saturated, blocky. I really see that in when we met Corky and into this time, she was still in that like early eighties, delicate Southern Belle shepherdess style. And now I like that we're starting to see a little bit more of the eighties into nineties vibe starting to come in. Yeah. It's almost like when we did, uh, um, Oh, I want my FYI that, that sort of eighties Memphis look, which I associated with the nineties. And I was shocked to find it. It's considered an eighties look. Cause I was like, well, that's what Mm -hmm. I think of like my childhood in the nineties, you know, also in the sense that like most school systems also have old stuff, but (laughs) (laughs) I digress. I think that could also be it. Murphy wants to proceed with my story, my fabulous story. But Frank says, why bother? Because they're going to go on strike. So here's my question to you, because I think a lot of people Mm. might not realize this. We assume this is after, correct? I'm thinking about the time period. Or is this going to be some sort of made up strike between the network producers? Because my assumption is that this is after. I'm going to say both and. Okay. In that if it was the real world, I would assume AFTRA. But also, this is we got a little bit of magical realism here. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is, because the average viewer might not know that distinction. Sure. I feel like the, the, the conceit of the show is that there is a specifically newscasters guild. That's what I think that they are implying perhaps especially because of the signs that we see later in phil in phil's i think i think for our knowledge it's aftra i think for the show there's a newscasters guild (laughs) and the reason i bring this up to our audience is that people may not realize that sag aftra used to be separate and AFTRA mm-hmm. was... It's very recent. It it's is, a very recent It is merger. very, very recent. But I th- I think that some people may not realize who maybe aren't as up to date or know a lot about the mm-hmm. entertainment industry. Um, we all voted on it. I was in SAG at the time. It was something that was happening that I think is even sort of a discussion that is relevant today because by merging, it helped people merge their hours for their health insurance because it was becoming an issue. That was a huge part. It was a huge issue. And that's why I voted yes, because I had a lot of friends who were having trouble where it was like they technically made enough hours, but they were from two separate unions, so they couldn't bring them together. But after originally is the American Federation of Television Radio Artists. And that's where all of the newscasters and the news people really were from. And so my first mm-hmm. thought was, oh, they're all after. But I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably technically just this sort of made up um, newscasters union. Yeah. And I think also there's a an understanding that they don't go in and explain who technically is is striking in this episode, probably to not weigh down the episode with those details. Yeah. And I think also by doing that, it's the same thing the West Wing does when they make up countries, right? You take yes. out everyone's uh, prior uh, biases on something and you let mm-hmm. them just listen to the debate and not worry about whatever sort of, you know, old ideas they have about something. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think And while making it very clear what it is they're referencing. Yes, and what I was talking with uh, Jesse with off uh, Mike was that um, it was interesting to listen to Terry Gross, who has played herself on a bunch of television series. And so as a reporter, she was like, I'm technically part of like two branches of the union. I'm a reporter, but also I'm in the acting part because she had to join because she probably had done enough 
if people don't know, you have, if you do at least like, you know, uh, two to three, depending on the contract, principal roles, you can join the union. And so she, you, she probably had to enable to do the next role as herself, which is funny to say that she had yeah. to do it to play herself. <laughs> you had you had a point of what is referred to in our, our industry as the must sign. You must sign yeah. to continue to work on this, on a, a guild project. Correct. And something that is that people don't realize are the the variety of people that are covered by this this combined guild now because there is a difference between an on-air character talent and an on-air as themselves talent versus a radio broadcast versus a voiceover gig however the nuance of what created the guild to protect these artists now encompasses so many more than just your your Tom Cruise So Murphy thinks that the network will do everything possible to make the on-air talent happy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Murphy doesn't care. She has fabulous hair in a story. (laughs) If Murphy sat for two seconds to talk about this for real, she would absolutely not say this line. But she is just so happy. And she's she's like, it's fine. I have a great story. It's all going to be fine. She's the naive Fran Drescher of the... (laughs) Before Fran Drescher was woken up to the the, the inequality of producers versus talent, of mm-hmm. oh they they're our friend, this is this is gonna go fine. My favorite running joke of the episode is that Corky thinks very wrong things about the strike, and she says she doesn't want anyone to hate her, but she actually really could use a paid vacation. To which oh, Frank, quirky. he I, has to bring her down to explain that um, yeah. they, they don't get paid when they're on strike. And Corgi does not believe him. I, I think Frank's ongoing psychological gesture of the episode is just like patting Corky on the shoulder or head. It's all honey. You, I I have to say, but it's like, it's like, it's all honey without the judgment. He's yes, just... Yes. Uh, he really is like her her strike ambassador. It's my favorite just a like C plot line of the of the episode is just watching Frank constantly like reeducating Corky. He's just in the corner just like correcting and helping educate yeah. her through this time now that she is one of the masses. <laughs> a little dad like where like he's like a little frustrated yeah. sometimes but he's just like no 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 scab scab. It's it's her first time. It's her first yeah, time. And, it's so sweet. And she's like oh, I just okay, like okay, I okay. <laughs> we so rarely see the two of them get paired together doing stuff. Yeah. And I just love watching Frank just trying to quietly just guide Corky through this journey of becoming a striking citizen. Yeah. And as it goes <laughs> along, like the way that Joe plays it is like, we went over this. We went over this <laughs> so many times. I'm trying to help you. They have kind of a uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen thing going on through this do. episode. Uh, Joe is, is the straight man and, and she's the comic. They're great together in this episode. It makes me want so much more. <laughs> it really does. Another favorite part that I love is that then everyone starts arguing with each other. And then Murphy just <laughs> screams at the top of her lungs like a tiny child, but with the voice of an adult to get everybody to stop. <laughs> this is the most only child energy. <gasps> so... Only slash youngest child energy I've ever seen. It was impeccable. It, I feel like Candace studied children <laughs> to do this scream. It's perfect. It's, uh, it's uh, again, the ongoing saga of Murphy Brown is a mood. So mm-hmm. she wants to explain that she has an interview with James Chandler, to which Miles screams, dun, dun, you're dun. kidding. 
So we have to assume that this is a big deal. Yes. Miles then proceeds to pretend to be a baseball player who's hit a home run and then goes through all of the actions as if he's running the bases, touching Frank's hands as like he's like the team and then going into the dugout. Grant Shaw to earn that paycheck. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's incredible. I, I kind of want to know how much of that was in the script. I mean, it's just... One of my favorite descriptions of Grant that, that Diane English gave was where she says that he just goes into his dressing room with his little beakers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's like he's like a little scientist and he's just like coming up with all of these little like ideas that he's doing. He's the type of actor that and obviously we know that, you know, he got his uh, kind of his his break in Torch Song. But he's the type of actor where I'm like, oh, I want to be in a play with you. Like, I want to be in a show where there are no cuts, where you're just on stage picking up whatever the other person's throwing down and you just have to live in the chaos. Like I would love to be opposite his choices in live theater. Cause I think it would be so much fun. Cause you know that like he's making big choices, but they're never at your expense. Like, you know, yeah. he's just like tossing you little gifts to act opposite. I would, I wish Grant Shaw was this age when the play that goes wrong came out. Oh God, he'd be so great in that. You know, you know, I just, I, uh If anyone doesn't know, it's a, it's a Broadway British play that's just everything literally goes wrong and it's just this yep. big farce and it's a play within a play and it's brilliant. If you look up on uh, on the internet, you can see a lot of their other productions yes. like Christmas Carol Goes Wrong. Think Waiting for Guffman. Think your local community theater where everyone just has the biggest plans and just everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And I've just never laughed as hard as I have in that play. And Grand Shad would have been... Note to... Maybe write some older characters for him please, to do. Please, please let him do this yes. for me. I saw him twice on stage. And the second time that I saw him was a comedy in which he was on stage with Jay Thomas and B.B. Newworth. <gasps> oh, right. And it was pretty incredible, I have to say. See, and there were other, I can't remember off the top of my head right now, because obviously I didn't prep this, but there were other really comic powerhouses in that that I just can't remember mm -hmm. right now. But like, I went to see the three of them. It was, Oh, yeah, what a gift. It was just like every sitcom actor who was in this show. Yeah. Miles then gives us a little backstory on Chandler. He hasn't talked to anyone since his savings and loan went belly up. This is definitely not the first time that we've had a savings and loan brought up on the show. It mm -hmm. was a really big deal in the late 80s, early 90s as uh, really the savings and loan crisis. And we've talked about it before, so you know it won't go sort of that much into it. But pretty much, Miles says that it's the biggest bankruptcy in American history. Murphy explains that his trial starts next week. So if he's going to do an interview, it's got to be on this week's show because she's pretty sure the judge is going to set or institute a gag order. This is a really great way, I think, to sort of build the stakes up as to why it has to happen now, which is so important to the plot. Mm -hmm. But Frank is adamant there's going to be a strike. I love it's having recently witnessed uh, the simmering a strike is coming right? conversations in our industry. It's something that I'm, I'm not sure everyone realizes if they're not, you know, union adjacent is that, you know, that it's coming. For a while, you know, when the contracts are up, you know, when people are sitting down, whispers are happening on either side, you are very aware. 
And so this doesn't come out of left field. It might for the average person who isn't paying attention to that industry, but Frank's been around for a while. Frank knows the rumblings. He knows what's going on. He's like, you know, they're friends with uh, Jim the Killer Dial. Like, they are very aware of what's happening. And watching Frank, I just saw somebody who has been working in his industry for a long time and understands the, the grumbling or and understands the whispers. He is an investigative reporter, so like... <laughs> if anyone can read the signs, it's it's our investigative reporter. Yeah. I love that uh, the way that Joe plays it is that it's like a confidence that he knows, but also a little anxious as well. Like, you know, yeah. it's gonna... Ha- well, because... It's gonna happen. <laughs> um, yes, well, also Frank is worried that they're gonna start... <laughs> Uh, reruns of FYI and then at some point they're going to get to the episode when his toupee fell in a sewer grate. <laughs> we no longer have the the rug be- after he burnt it. Thank God. I actually forgot that we hadn't seen it in a while until I saw the montage. And I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I know. Me too. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Because before we saw Frank in that ep- that Miles episode on location, we had a whole debate of whether, like, does he wear the rug when he's on location? Because he doesn't wear yep. it in real life. He didn't even wear it to the Humboldts, I think. It's so it's, it's so strange that people are like, okay, yep. he just wears it for the show. But I do love the fact that they obviously decided not to do it anymore, but they made it fit into the plot. Like, it makes total sense that, like, he yes. burned it and he's done. <laughs> he's done with the rug. I am curious, though, yep. if that is something that Joe just didn't want to wear it anymore, or they were just like, oh, it's too much of a hassle. Let's just write it out off. Actually, I have too many potential... Obviously, it's probably a little of both. Now, Murphy reminds everybody... Jim, the killer dial. That's my man. Yes, he is. He is the negotiator and he's on our side. And it's so great that such a great little comic moment. It's everyone in this scene is so brilliant. Candace is all confident about her gym. And then the elevator opens to find <laughs> a gym dial so disheveled. His little pocket square is like a skew. I literally wrote pocket square askew. <gasps> oh my God, so did I. <laughs> It's the alliteration. It's so, if there, pocket square is how you know. Pocket square is you. It's how, what a, oh, so mm, mm. gorgeous. But also it's just that visual. Like you see his energy oh, the is energy. back and yeah. down. But the pocket square is how you know it's something bad. Strike. <laughs> it's just, Strike. that scene is just like how we all sort of feel, but you like, you know what happened. It was like the <laughs> killer has been silenced. Strike. Oh, man. It just punches the joke. And then Frank goes, told you. They bring Jim over to the table. So Miles just can't believe that they're not all reasonable people, which Jim, of course, goes, oh, sure. At 6 a.m. there was a fist fight over the last raisin bagel. Jim is just so upset about how petty everyone was and they, they're grown men and women, you know, resorting to name calling. And he's just so frustrated. I really appreciate this is so in line with Jim, which we see later, right? Like as yeah. much as he wants to later on mock, which he, I guess he really does a little bit, the people on screen, he, it's going against his morals. It's almost like they're mocking back to him his industry by doing a bad job. Jim is an Enneagram one if I've ever seen one, and I am one. <laughs> and I feel his frustration with the just the indignity and the, the lack of justice and fairness and just the, the, the lack of doing what is what is right in yeah. this way. He is so frustrated. And also the there's a payoff to the speech he makes about yes, men and women resorting to name calling. 
Pretty, pretty great. Because Gene Kinsella, who we've met before, highly recommend we'll put in the notes going back to the first time we meet Gene, because we do talk about Alan Oppenheimer, who plays uh, Eugene Gene Kinsella and his storied career. So Alan Oppenheimer as uh, Eugene Kinsella was actually nominated for guest actor in a comedy series. He was beat out by Jay Thomas as Jerry Gold, which we talked about in a previous episode. And there's actually a little clip of them being at the same table when Jay's announced and the first person he goes up to is Alan. That's I mean, so after sweet. His, after his wife. Yeah, it's just very sweet because they obviously like didn't really even work together. Yeah. But it's perfect timing. Jim goes, here's the head weenie now. Here's the head weenie <laughs> oh, now. Jim. Jim's not the best na- name caller. <laughs> And we will establish a lot this season that when he gets tired, he he gets a little ornery. Yeah, gets a little snappy. Yeah, a little snappy. Of course, as soon as he says it, he can't believe himself. He's so sorry he hasn't slept. Emotions are high. Jim goes, it's okay. We're family. And then Jim comments that Gene has a little piece of bagel in his teeth, <laughs> which I love because it's, an, it's a joke that makes you think about what previously has been said. <laughs> Gene is clearly ruthless. Oh, he's terrible in this episode. He's a, he's a terrible person. If anybody in that room could have afforded to get their own damn bagel, it would have been Gene Kinsella. But no, he fought everyone in that room for the last raisin bagel. Yeah. Just because he could. He, he, of course, represents management the most in this episode. And considering, mm-hmm. as we talked about in the first strike episode, these are writers who are coming off a 1988 strike. Yep. So they have a lot of thoughts about management. Very fresh in their mind, I would say. In strike I mode, so. I mean. Because uh, I feel like the best testament of that is I just stepped on him, which we'll get to later. Oh, my God. I just stepped so on him. Yeah. Yeah. Gene sucks um, in this episode. But so I have a question just from. Yeah. The protocol of strike. Okay. The newscaster's strike negotiator has walked in and said, strike. They are on strike. Yeah. Now, I know that Frank's about to say something about this, but like, that's real messed up. It's real messed up that Gene Kinsella walks his ass over to the bullpen to talk to his newscasters. Oh, yeah. Following their negotiator, who's coming to tell them they are on strike. He should not be speaking to them. No, no, no. He's a horrible little person. Well, and also you think about you have Miles, who's relatively new. He's, you know, gone through a crew strike, but not a strike with his, the people he hangs out with the most. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then you have Corky, who's never been on strike before. And so you have this man in a position of power who just strolls on in acting like nothing has changed with the power dynamic. When has it management tried to take advantage of talent? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that type of power play, that type of moving as if, the kind of confidence man confidence of like, no, he has, there's nothing wrong with him talking to them right now. They're just talking about things. That's how people get uh, unknowingly scabbed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, which we will talk about. But I was just like, Gene. Gene. Gene is the worst. Gene is the worst. Corky has so many questions for Gene, from ethics to protection. (laughs) Do they provide sunblock or do we bring our own? Great question, Corky. Honestly, this is why you look so good. She does. Um, Frank? here to teach her first lesson (laughs) ready do not talk to management they are striking for their brothers and sisters in the smaller cities who don't have the same benefits that we do it's called solidarity correct long history of labor whose blood and sweat made this country great i thought the writers did an incredible job in this episode of making these points that were very resonant and current to them about their lives but made it about a different subject like the idea a different industry striking they were still able to make those points about what solidarity means what a strike actually is because i think even even with the 
the crew strike that we saw, we didn't fully understand it because our leads weren't on the crew. They were the people that were being, quote unquote, affected by it. But being able to watch our characters go through a strike allowed us to, in light and quippy ways, learn more about what that actually means. And I think a lot of people still aren't fans of unions and they don't understand Mm -hmm. why they're needed. Mm -hmm. Which is too bad. And I, again, encourage educating yourself. Agreed. Jean is very clear that this is not personal. It's a business decision. Murphy agrees. But then she (laughs) turns to Jean and says, is that your head or is your neck growing a bubble? (laughs) Jean does not like this as a bald man. So Jean says that they are on his property and they have to be out by noon, to which Murphy goes, big man, I'm scared. And then like they all pretend to be scared. Frank does this like fake shaking, which I really love, and kind of chase Mm -hmm. him to the elevator. Uh, And then we're at Phil's. Gene Kinsella is waiting at the hero table. How dare he? For Miles. Miles bursts in through the front. We can hear some some voices outside the door. Apologizes for being late. He was uh, having some trouble getting through the picket line. Morley Safer, uh, you may know as the longest running host of 60 Minutes, was lying in the street blocking the entrance. And Gene says he just stepped on him. Ugh. How metaphorical. <laughs> so perfect. The way Gene is holding court in this scene is so gross. Like, kudos to Alan Oppenheimer. He's so gross in this He's scene. He's such a buffoon. Um, ugh. Gene says they'll get to the topic all in good time. He calls Phil over warmly. Phil, my guy, kind of energy. Says he wants to order a Phil burger. Actually, no, they have the regular menus. Gives them a different set of menus. It's the Phil burger, but there seems to be something different. He says, oh, that's the management menu. Uh, The difference is five bucks. (laughs) They're shocked that Phil would do this. And he says, you have Phil's confused with Switzerland. You know, you know that Phil's going to be a union man. Of course. In this and in many worlds, uh, management is a bit oblivious to who doesn't like them. They, of course, for some reason, think Phil's going to be on their side. I also would say that probably uh, management spends less money at Phil's. <laughs> when is the last time Gene Kinsella was in Phil's? I also think Miles is only there because Miles is with the gang. <laughs> I don't think Miles would ever have become a Phil's regular had he not wanted to be in with the gang. If Miles had wanted to be Gene Kinsella... Miles would not be a regular at Phil's. I mean, he still calls him Mr. Kinsella, even when they're on the air. Yep. Gene is very excited now that they've ordered to tell Miles the big news, which is, uh, does he remember last year when Jim was in Libya on assignment and they had a guest anchor? Listeners, you should also remember this. Yes! That was season two, episode two, Anchors Away. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go back because we go through the history of the career of Christopher Rich, who is going mm-hmm. to be playing this next person who many of you may know as the husband on Reba. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible episode. It's one of my favorites of season two. This is part of the the montage that we saw where we saw Jim in the field. Mm-hmm. This is uh, referencing that. So Miles is already looking nervous when this is mentioned. Yeah. That guest anchor was Miller Redfield. And Miles says, oh, what a clown. He's arrogant, incompetent. And Gene says, and very much in demand, because he's willing to cross the picket line. They've hired him to replace Murphy. Miller! Miller! Not only was it awful when this just pissant came in to replace my beloved Jim, but the fact that he's coming in to replace Murphy is just, oh, oh, it's so much worse. And Miles understands that. He says, with all due respect, Mr. Kinsella, the man was a disaster. 
He froze on the air. His questions were incoherent. They still run highlights of it on Letterman. <laughs> Please go watch that episode because that is a perfect summary. Yes, and I will put a link to that episode of the podcast in the summary if people want to go back and listen to that as well, if they haven't already. Uh, Gene says, well, he's matured now. He spent a year in their bureau in Kuala Lumpur, and it did him a world of good. And before that, he was in, was it East Yemen? What? What was it? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Miles is a bit uh, unsure. Uh, you know, to it. To be fair, he does say the pressure of carrying a show, a live network show. And Jesus, oh, no, he's not asking him to fly solo. Gene himself is going to take over Jim's spot. Buffoon. Uh, How dare he? How dare he? <laughs> Grant is a great read of you? Yeah. Oh, Gee, oh you. How about that? You on the air, Mr. Kinsella. I never would have thought of that. Nope. Never in a million years. And just drops his head in his hands. Gene says that's why he's the boss, Silverberg. Few people are born with a voice like this. That's when the gang arrives. And now I was able to read all all of the signs except for Frank's because Frank walks in with a down basically yeah, on yeah. the ground. It's hard to read. But I, what I see, we have Murphy who's in her uh, her leisure wear, t-shirt yes. and uh, hat and pants. Uh, hers just says on strike. Corky, who's still wearing a like a skirt, like business casual outfit, but she's got her sneakers. Oh, I know. It's uh, great. And hers says... Management unfair to newscasters. This is why I think it's a fake just newscasters guild. Jim is carrying a sign that says, we give you the news. We don't want to be abused. <laughs> Bless. I didn't notice that. That's great. Bless that almost rhyme. I had to pause it and read upside down to get it, but I'm proud of him trying to rhyme. And Murphy says, hey, well, looks like taking their jobs wasn't enough. Now they want their table. Mm. And they kind of surround the table mostly miles no one really wants to stand next to gene and miles is just like hey how you guys doing holding up okay missed you and does the cutest attempt to cuddle jim's hand he does and jim is like oh no what is be a man oh. what are you doing he's like miles it's only been one day <laughs> he says that it's not been particularly enjoyable walking on the picket line sam donaldson who you may remember as abc's white house correspondent uh brought his dog i always hated chester Try to march in circles with a lonely cocker spaniel attached to your leg. And then Corky decides to join the conversation. Oh, Corky. And she says, if they have to strike for a hundred more years, they will. And let me tell you, Faith Ford's use of plosives in this next line does all the work. It is like the plosives showed up for their own paycheck. I love her in this episode. She says, for too long, we proletarians have toiled and struggled so you capitalist pigs can live off the sweat from our backs. We're throwing off the shackles of servitude. And she throws a fist in the air and cries, power to the people. There's cheers from the audience. Corky Norma Ray Sherwood Forrest. She is now the woman of the working class. <laughs> oh, I love it. She is the hero everyone deserves. Everybody looks at Frank afterwards. And I don't know why the first time I watched it, I didn't get it until like the second time I watched it is that Corky is totally his Eliza Doolittle this entire episode and everyone knows. Oh, him. yes. Yes. No, everyone is watching the work be done. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And I wish that that had been a larger like B plot. Mm -hmm. I know the show doesn't do a lot of B plots, but I yeah, honestly, it's great. If it was a longer like episode of television, I think something I would have wanted was a, a little like protest training montage of Corky trying to figure out how to be a strike, a striker. Yes. And him training her on like the gesture and what to say. And like, maybe she's saying things too happily. And so he's get, teaching her how to frown more. Like, I'm just like, I want to see the training montage. <laughs> I'm very proud of Frank. 
and quirky. Murphy asks about how it's going at the office. And Gene says, oh, well, he was able to bring in a rising new star. Right at that moment, Miller Redfield arrives. As we mentioned, played by Christopher Rich. Please, please go listen to us cover Christopher Rich. He does such incredible work. And I feel, <laughs> um, doesn't, don't you feel like he has a little more confidence as an actor in this one? Which I think still plays because... Miller is coming back. And so as as a, a newscaster, he has a confidence, right? But he, he always mm-hmm. has that sort of arrogant confidence of a buffoon who, like, doesn't realize how stupid yep. he is. I loved him in the last episode. And I love Christopher Rich. He's one of my favorite guest stars. But he was he just I loved watching him in this episode because it was like, oh, yeah, you got this. Like, you are just yes. really like bringing your A game so much and I think it's because in an actor when you're invited back you have that confidence right I think Christopher Rich the earned confidence to appropriately play Miller's unearned confidence yeah 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 it's that idea of like he has the confidence to be a complete idiot oh Miller really feels feels like everything's coming up Miller he reintroduces himself hiya boss to Miles and then speaks to what he calls the unemployed people and says, after the way you ran me off the air last time, you probably thought I was finished. I told you I'd be back. Everything that goes around comes back to Capistrano. Which is a saying that I've heard and I realized I didn't know what it meant. And I had to Google it. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I've always heard it, but never really like conceptualized in my head what it meant. Because sure. people don't say it anymore. Mm-hmm. Should I tell people what it means, I guess? T- please tell the people. Okay, so it's a metaphor for reliability of a recurring <laughs> event, like tax day. Mm-hmm. He is not a recurring event. <laughs> please, God, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's quite hilarious that he probably also doesn't really know what it means. No. I mean, he's coming back, but he's not permanent, I guess is what I mean. He's not going to always come back. He doesn't know yeah. that. He thinks he will. That's true. I guess he doesn't. He's got Mr. Gene Kinsella on his side. (laughs) Maybe he is using it correctly. (laughs) Frank very sincerely says, gee, Miller, we're we're surprised to see you. Who's covering the news in Kuala Lumpur? What if there's a four donkey pileup during rush hour? He and Corky are like, (laughs) he and Corky are just old pals now. Jim, however, again, trying to maintain a bastion of wisdom and professionalism goes to educate Miller about how long he's been in the union, what he's fought for to have the rights that they do. And he says that seeing Miller over there on the other side of the picket line reminds him of Judas at the Last Supper. Mm. Miller goes, well, at least someone's on my side. Newest working class spokeswoman Corky Sherwood calls Miller a scar, (laughs) to which Frank very quietly corrects and says, no, not scar, it's scab. Scab. Uh, Now, I realize that this word is being thrown around a lot in uh, media and social media. Lauren, would you be able to tell the people what what scab actually means? So technically a scab is somebody who is sort of a strike breaker. They they cross a picket line to work. And this can be both someone who is in the union and someone who is not in the union. If you are taking work from a union striker. So for example, if you are a non-union actor who wants to work on a union job, and you go in to do that job that otherwise would have gone to a union actor who is striking, that is scabbing. Whether or not you were in the union or intend to be, you you still are scabbing. What's interesting is that around 1810, the word actually was meant to be anyone who wouldn't even join the union, but it's really around the 1700s that it becomes sort of a change into people who are crossing a picket line. It's, yes. it's, sl- it's slang, pretty much. Something that I think is important when it comes to 
the striking conversation that they're having and what scabbing actually means and affects is that a strike is not happening because people are throwing a tantrum about past or present injustices. They're securing jobs, safety, and stability for the future. Exactly. Strikes are about the future. They are mm -hmm. not about a current temper tantrum. They are not about a, we're mad that you did this thing in the past to us. Like those things affect the the goals for the future, but this is about the future. So if you want a future in the industry, if you, in whatever the industry is, if you want to make sure that if you do become a union member in the future, that you want it to be safe and stable for you, that's what these are for. These are make these are setting precedents and they are setting the groundwork for your future work. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge reason why n not being a scab is important. And I, I, I hope that is a conversation that Frank then goes and has with Corky uh, after he reiterates yes. the, the, the word. <laughs> yes, she is his Eliza Doolittle. And I love it. Miller is is unaffected as as he is by most things. He is unaffected by this. Turns to to the group, ready to go. Who is this James Chandler guy? Miller. Murphy is horrified because I think it just hit her who Miller's stepping in to replace, whose yep. job and story he's taking. She can't believe that this is happening. And Kinsella assures Brownie, his nickname for her that he has hired someone who can rise to the occasion and has a perfect comedic take to Miller, who is struggling to eat food like a toddler. Cut to Murphy in her townhouse. Uh, in a robe, her hair up, looking like most of us probably look at home, but uh, it's, mm -hmm. it seems like she's just uh, relaxing with all of her books. <laughs> <laughs> all of her books. She is aggressively licking these sort of nameplates, putting them in the books. Uh, her shelves are barren. Eldon comes in inquiring when the strike will be over, when she's actually going to get dressed today, um, because she is driving him nuts. And then they proceed to have the most amazing conversation as if they are a couple. The most married couple to ever be on television. <laughs> How is Murphy supposed to guess these things? And Eldon says they never talk anymore. Maybe we're just one of those couples who can't spend a lot of time together. <laughs> it's so good. He's so serious about it. Like there's no, it's all earnest. He needs her out of the house to love her. Miles has arrived. Uh, Miller apparently is a bigger idiot than they thought. Shocking. He's been smoking a pipe everywhere. Uh, Miles had to coach him on what actually the savings and loan crisis is. The Justice Department uh, won't discuss the case. And the Senate subcommittee report won't come out for another two weeks. And he feels like he's drowning. And he sounds like he's drowning because Grant is doing his great anxious Miles thing that he does, which is great. And Murphy says, yeah, you know, the report really nails him. You see, she read it. She read it over the weekend. She is a mole in the Senate. And it's interesting what her mole in the Senate can find in the Xerox room. Miles jumps mm -hmm. up and cheers. He's saved. He knew that Murphy would crack it. Oh, it's too bad that she's on strike. Shucks. Miles says that he would never ask her to compromise herself in any way, but, you know, it's it's not personal. He, he really needs his information. And Murphy says something so great. She says, no, Miles, oh, yeah. I think it's very personal. It's my profession. And I won't make a joke of it and give it to a guy who thinks Nelson Mandela is a country and Western singer. Oh, bless. Miles, oh, so great. Miles and Lazadon 
thick, you know, just tells her how great she is and how lucky he is to have been born in her lifetime. To which she says, goodbye, Miles. He knew he shouldn't have started with the flattery route. <laughs> then he says something with all earnestness that he realizes later is a mistake, which is one day Murphy will need something from him. And then Candace, Patricia Bergen, licks the nameplate that she has in front of her and just stares Miles down like, yeah, no, I will not need anything from you. Mm -mm. <gasps> and he cowers. And, You're never going to need anything from me. So stupid. <laughs> I have to say, my favorite thing about this last section of that is the the back to back. Never should have gone with the flattery route. Dumb, dumb, dumb. You're never going to need anything from me. Stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> like the way, I don't know if that's in the script or if that's just yeah. Grant figuring out with his little beakers of si of comedy yeah. science. Oh, it's so Ugh. good. Mm. Oh, licks the damn nameplate. And then what? we are back to the studio. Yes, we are in the studio. Gene is getting ready to go on air as Jim Dial. He's got the, the makeup tissues in his in his collar and he's working on his sign off. He he coroners Miles and John. Right now he's thinking, be well, be wise, be with us next week. And he says, if it's too wordy, he could just say, and he holds his hand up, he just goes, Harmony. It's almost a Vulcan salute. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> he just doesn't spread the fingers. He could just say, Harmony. Miles obviously trying to keep his job. It's like, oh gee, it's so hard to choose. You know, usually he relies on John for those decisions. John? Poor John, this episode. John's just trying to keep this, this freaking show afloat. He says, Harmony's funnier. I'd go with Harmony. And just leaves it there. Miller arrives. It's the best crew in television. He calls John Bill. He shouts, at, gives a shout out to Hairbrush Lady. Hairbrush Lady. I wrote that down. Oh. I just, Hairbrush Lady. Hairbrush oh. Lady. I have worked with the Millers of the world. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. They are golden retriever humans. Yes. They're not... They're not bad in their essence. No, he means they're, well. And they are truly oblivious to how much everyone dislikes them. Yeah. I'd rather work with them than many jerks that I have worked with. But oh, it just it the the way it grates, the way the what must it be like to live in that oblivious state? It sounds so relaxing. It sounds like a nightmare. Oh, <laughs> I don't want to be that universe if you're listening. Please do not freaky Friday me with Miller Redfield. But like, I just, I wonder how much more relaxing it is in there. There's a lot of space. So much space. So much space. Such a waste of space, to quote contact. Miller makes his way over to the chairs where he'll be hosting the, the interview with Chandler and says, okay, cameras, let's have a good show. And asks, who has his close up? Ugh. And lucky us, it's Carl. Carl the Defender. Carl, who would love to go by Carl Brown. Carl would take her last name. Oh, totally he would. Miller says, oh, he he just wants to say one thing. Three-quarter shot on this side of the face and never, never profile. Carl says, quote, I didn't like you the last time you were here, and I don't like you now. You're taking the bread out of my Murphy's mouth, and that's the same as taking it out of mine. Mm. And Miller? Miller. Oh, Miller. Pokes at Carl's stomach and says from where he's standing, Carl could use less bread. And then laughs like they're buddies. Never offend the people who make you look good or prepare your food. 
you don't poke Carl. Mm-mm. And Carl gets downright terrifying in this moment. I loved it. He's great. Says, you got a real pretty mouth. Do you know how big those lips will look in a fisheye lens? And then sticks his tongue out at him and walks away. I <laughs> but love he does this. it in a like. I love oh, this it's, because we, yeah. we've only seen sort of Carl in the so the blush of love, right? And very sort of insecure yes, yes. and like a little dopey in in a good sense, like not mm-hmm. not not dopey in a bad sense. And so to see that, like, no. without Murphy being there, he's actually a very strong, capable. He is. Yeah, like it's interesting. I love that. I love what Murphy does to him. Right? And also retroactively looking back at all the times that he said he would defend her or he would throw down for her. Right. I'm like Carl would end someone. He, he would legitimately would. end them. He t- and also, what I love is. Carl is not just a like fist and knuckles working man would throw down. Carl is smart enough to know how to ruin Miller Redfield by just focusing incorrectly in his close up. He is smart enough to be like, oh, I'll ruin your career, you big mouthed rude. He's a. Oh, Carl is devious. I love Carl. Anyway, Miles approaches as if Miller is ready. Is the material straight in his head? (laughs) I love that question. And you know what? Actually, Miller has been doing a lot of thinking, oh, good, lucky us, about the savings and loan business. All this, and he quotes, mumbo gumbo. (laughs) Oh, Miller. So he came up with a whole new line of questioning. And at this point, Kinsella has made his way over as well. And he says, tell me, Mr. Chandler, why is it when savings and loan validates your parking, they rarely give you more than 20 minutes? And what I love is he punctuates it with his paper like he's like really giving it to him. <laughs> Miles and Kinsella look horrified. Yeah. And Miles says, you, you can't ask him that. And Miller says, hey, he knows it's tough, but he thinks it's fair. He's like, How? now here's another one he has. Why are the lines so long on Friday afternoons and at lunch too? I'm really going to nail him with that one. <laughs> What's also amazing about Miller is someone who on the surface, and I, I hate to use this word, but it is an archetype of who Corky was when the show started, is mm-hmm. stupider than quirky yeah because he just is so oblivious quirky is oblivious but she does want to learn and she actively does he doesn't want to learn like many straight white men but anyway the confident blush of privilege it's glorious yes (laughs) gene and miles look properly horrified john at that moment walks by to say one minute to air let us pray (laughs) oh john we cut to Phil's. Everyone is waiting to watch FYI on the smallest little 70s, <laughs> 80s television set. I'm not sure it even has a remote because <laughs> Phil has to stand to like turn it on. <laughs> oh, the good old days. Phil is really on in this episode. He's taken no, he is no so bunk good. from anyone. Um, so the show starts with Gene saying he's ready when they are. They're actually like on the air. He can't seem to find the right camera. He says, welcome to Fee-Fi-I, which, of course, everyone laughs. Uh, Jim looks so flustered by the whole thing, but when people laugh, he goes, hey, now, and puts his hands up. He is dressed in a nice burgundy sweater like an English professor. Jesse, your thoughts? Jim is in his Mr. Rogers best. Oh, yes. that's And I mm -hmm. love him in it. It's, oh, casual Jim, off-the-clock Jim. This is Jim's version of Murphy's, like, t-shirt and, and jeans to protest mm-hmm. i oh, i just want to read a book with him in a study somewhere you know jim mm-hmm. explains to the group that it's very difficult and nerve-wracking job to anchor a live broadcast 
I love when they do this juxtaposition with him. It's great. So Jim says, spit it out, you old fool. Spin some more. You look like the exorcist. Oh, Jim. He's so proud of his joke. He is really proud of his joke. And it just shows that, like, he wants to be a proper guy, but also just, like, he can't help himself. He's upset. He can't. This is when Gene gives the interesting information to everyone, including the audience, that um, their top story is with James Chandler from our crack economic reporter, Miles Silverberg, to which Murphy (laughs) is actively concerned. (laughs) Yes, as she should be. Like, she's worried for him. I love this take on the episode because I'd forgotten that this is what happened, which as an adult looking at this, I think it's such a well-crafted episode and I maybe just didn't understand the nuances of what was happening to enjoy it as much as I do now. So Corky goes, what happened to Miller? And then the door opens. And did you notice that there's like a literal sound effect of like a gust of air as if Miller has been sort of blown in, you know, Uh, which I thought was really funny. They were really spot on with the the sounds that accompany the opening of Phil's in this episode. Yeah. And then the the sound effects of what's going on on the other side of Phil's door. (laughs) Very much plays into this episode. So Frank yells, hey, everyone, it's Miller time. This is another reason I love Christopher Rich's performance in this episode, because he says this next line with such pain, but it's still funny, which is, give me six drinks. They don't all have to be the same. (laughs) It's so good. (laughs) I'm using that for the rest of my life. Right? It's such a great, great, great line. They don't all have to be the same. Phil says, no shoes, no shirt, no brains, no service. Oh. Murphy just has a big smile on her face. Wow, Miller, the first time you get fired before you open your mouth, you must feel real bad. (laughs) The Redfields have been laughed at for centuries, and we're still here. And we'll be here until the end of time. Just us and the cockroaches. You'll see. Oh, oh, no, 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 you won't. You won't be here. (laughs) Sorry, bud, bud. I, he's so great in this episode, and it's—he's not as—he doesn't even have as big of a part as Chris will throughout the rest of the series. Like Miller uh-huh. becomes quite recurring, but he's just so memorable in in the small moments he has in this episode. Yeah. Then we hear a speeding car stopping short. Footsteps. It's Miles. M- Mer- too many M's. There are too many people with M's in this episode. <laughs> The number one rule of script writing, they say, is never name a character with the same letter. So many. So many. (laughs) Oh, Miles enters. Miller, of course, goes, look who's crawling back. Nope, he's there to see Murphy. He's 45 seconds. And he knows that when he went to her, you didn't want to help that putz. But that putz is now this putz. Uh, a putz, uh, for anyone, is another Yiddish word. It means stupid person, like a lot of Yiddish words. But I was always told that it also means penis, or that it's mm-hmm. a part of the penis. But nothing online tells me that. But that's what I was told as a kid, that it is a very specific, like, the under part of your penis. I don't understand. I don't have a penis. But... <laughs> This is what I was told, but I can't find any reference to what part of the penis putz means. But let's just say that it means Mm. stupid, but it just means penis probably. Like, I'm sorry that went on for very long, but it cracked me up that I could not find the description that I was told when I was a child. Anyway, yeah. But also schmuck now means stupid to most people as well. And American vernacular is technically that definition, even though it technically doesn't mean that in actual Yiddish. So words change. Language is ever evolving. It is ever evolving. This, of course, puts Murphy in a terrible situation by being asked 
by Miles to um, help her. He says, Murphy, I know you're dedicated to the strike, and I respect that. I really do. You say that you take things really personally. Well, so do I. I'm your friend, and I need your help. Ugh. Just in the gut. Mm. Murphy. I mean, well played, Silverberg. Yeah, but he's it's earnest. Like, it's not a play, right? Like, in the other scene when he's trying to, like, get at her ego, like, he really is desperate, mm-hmm. and he really wants his friend to help him. Murphy is really torn that she can't discuss the report with him, but if she did, he might want to ask him why he double-billed his company over the last seven years. Corky and the gang are not happy. Corky calls her a stinking collaborator, and you know what we do with stinking collaborators? We shave their legs. (laughs) Frank corrects her that we shave their heads. Uh, Also true. Sure. All of the above. Why not? I mean, we want to help each other, so if someone wants to shave my legs... I would be open to it. Yeah. yeah. And Murphy really gives this very sort of passionate sort of speechlet about how Miles has been there for them so many times. Can't she help a friend in need? It wouldn't kill us to return the favor to Miles just once. Oh, Murphy. Mm-hmm. She's really growing. Like, she really... I feel like the old Murphy would not have acted like this, but Miles is has become her, her good friend, and she really cares about him. I just... I, I want pilot episode Murphy to meet this Murphy kind of just slack jawed <laughs> take in what she's witnessing <laughs> yeah she would never believe that she would feel like this about Miles Frank tells her it won't just be once Miles is going to just keep coming back and coming back for advice and the more she helps him the longer the strike will last Murphy is so assured as if she was at the beginning that there was no strike that Miles won't do it won't do it that he knows how hard this is for her we sort of close up on Miller, really sort of depressed at the bar, and then go back to the studio. Where Chandler is now in the interviewee seat, getting some makeup touch-ups. Mm-hmm. Gene is pacing. His makeup tissues are back on his jacket, which if you've ever been on set, they don't normally return the makeup tissues to your collar to just touch up. I like to imagine that Gene asked for another full face of makeup. <laughs> He's probably sweating a lot. Yeah, I feel like they had to go back in and add more makeup. So they had to return the the tissues because they had to put so much product back on him. John begins the countdown. And right as they're about to cut to Miles' empty seat, Miles rushes into his spot just in time to say, welcome back. He then asks Chandler the question. And all he gets back is no comment. No comment. No comment, you say. So let me get this straight. You're saying... You will not comment. <laughs> Miles has, Grant Shaw does the best just attempt to turn no comment into something. <laughs> Little mini breakdown and says, um, okay, so we're just going to throw it over to Gene. And Gene is sitting there with the entire hair and makeup team surrounding him <laughs> center, center frame with all his makeup tissues. And we see as and we're viewing this from a TV and we see as it cuts to kind of a filler screen of what looks like a landscape with some birds, <laughs> a sunset with birds. And Murphy is we're in Phil's Murphy staring at the screen saying that Miles had the perfect opportunity to nail the guy and he missed it. Miller decides to yell from his spot, which I think he's gotten a drink finally, <laughs> just decides to uh, yell about to ask him about parking validation because that's what America wants to know. No one wants to know Miller. No. Phil is standing right in this great shot in which Phil happens to be standing in front of Miller for this this shout. We see Phil check his watch. We hear the screech of tires. Yes. 
Phil makes his way to the door to open it just as Miles sprints oh, in. Oh, it's so great. Oh, it's beautifully done. And it's there's a couple camera choices in this episode that I really appreciate. Uh, Barnett, this is for you. That moment where Phil happens to be dirtying the foreground of the shot so we can see him check his watch. Also, something's coming up where we see over Murphy's shoulder the gang. There are just some really brilliant shots that yeah. to the story of the moment without having to cut to people. Agreed. That is, uh, it's beautifully filmed. Miles has sprinted his way straight to Murphy. He's panicking. He thinks Chandler senses he's a rookie. He's going to stonewall him through the whole interview. He's seen her crack these guys before. She has to help him. Oh. And the gang is watching in frustration. And Murphy asks him, so you're asking me again to help you again. And the gang is standing behind her. And she says, okay, Miles, here's what you do. And the gang turns around in disappointment, disgust, frustration. Except for Jim, who goes kind of like a three-quarter turn. This is important. Mm -hmm. She says, when you're back on the air with Chandler, ask him the question again. Then just look at him. Don't say a word. And this is the shot where you just see Jim slowly turning back and listening with interest mm -hmm. as she's talking. Also, I just have to call this out. We know I'm a Jim Dial fan. We know I'm a Charlie Kimbrough fan. But like, Charlie Kimbrough is so handsome. Yeah, I just have to, he's very chiseled. This shot of him, this is such this is such a good shot of him. He's just so handsome. And I just have to celebrate the stunning features that belong to Charles Kimbrough. Mm, what a shot. You're welcome. Miles is horrified by it. He says, just sit there staring at him and him staring at me. We'd have nothing but dead air. Murphy says, not for long. And as she's doing the rest of this speech, the rest of the gang start turning around because we've seen Jim kind of look at Corky and yeah. look at Frank. And she says, not for long. This will take a tremendous amount of self-control on your part, but eventually the silence will get to him and he'll talk. You'll see. Everything you want to know will just come pouring out of him. And Miles goes, really? She says, oh, it's an old reporter's trick. She learned it from Mike Wallace. She probably shouldn't even be telling him. And in the meantime, the gang has fully turned back around. And now they're all, they all start swarming her again, saying, why are you helping him? What is, and Jim says, why don't you just give him all of our secrets? Thanks for nothing, Murphy. Murphy, Murphy then in this, in this moment of outrage from the gang, picks Miles's wrist up and shows him his own watch. He screams, oh God, and sprints back out. <laughs> they all stand there and she says to the room, I give the strike another 20 minutes. They all cheer. We cut to credits and it's a different credits than normal. Yes. Because while we did just end the episode on I Give the Strike Another 20 Minutes, the credits are the results of her efforts, which is that they are just Miles and Chandler staring each other down in their seats on air while John and Carl are in agony behind the cameras and the, oh, and the monitors. It's great. At one point, the actor who plays Chandler reaches down to grab a glass of water and Grandshaw just mirrors that as if he's doing this in confidence. And it's just... The entire credits are them just staring. It's absolute yeah. and silence. And it never ends. And then the show just ends. Like uh, the Murphy the Brown show, show ends. ends. It's just that's so great. Um, anyone to the point that like I the show Murphy Brown the show itself cut audio from this. Like there's a, no audio. It's absolute silence. Yeah. It's oh my god. I'd forgotten about that, and I was like, oh, this is so good. It's so funny. Paul Collins plays James Chandler. People may recognize him from The West Wing, The Good Wife, Quantum mm -hmm. Leap, tons of stuff, character actor. As soon as I saw him, I was like, I know this guy. Why do I know this guy? That guy. Yep. This is one of those episodes that like I really hadn't thought about. Didn't think that I would enjoy yep. it. And no, like I really enjoyed it. It's really well crafted. Acting is great. The physicality. 
Yay, Scott and team. This was this was an incredible episode. And obviously, yes, there's a lot of personal resonance and relevance for us uh, and with current events. But I think that this is such a beautifully crafted, mature episode. Like this was an episode that was for for adults. Yes. You know, like this was I think there's a reason that I didn't remember much of it. Exactly. Like you yeah. had alluded to because I was a kid and I wasn't fully following everything. But watching this now, it makes me appreciate so much this conversation of their personal and professional relationships. This idea of when you're at work, you're like, we're a family. But what happens when you're asked to take sides? I thought it was, an, yeah, it was an incredible mirror up to Murphy and Miles's relationship. Yeah. We got to see... We got to see Jim again and his position as a leader of their industry and of their their group in particular. I it we got to see more of Carl. I I just thought it was really this is a new favorite episode of mine. And I was not expecting that because we know how we feel about seasons three and four. I got a lot of favorite episodes. Yeah, yeah, I know. But this was I this was such a, a wonderful surprise. I just I, I think I was relatively ambivalent about it. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a huge fan. Like I'm excited to show this to my spouse. It, it, the conflict is so interesting because it, they could have just made the conflict management versus talent, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a broader picture of the episode, but the heart of the episode is the conflict between Miles and Murphy's friendship and mm-hmm. what the position that that puts her in um, as a friend and as an employee. And that's yeah. more interesting. And it's that, again, that kind of reminder of what's what's really fun about how they they wrote and cast these characters is we often forget the the capitalist power dynamics of this group. And this is a reminder of what happens when we remember that Miles is her boss. Yeah. And he is not he is not on the side of talent, technically. And that's those are really fun. It's it's such a great way to organically have that conversation again. Yeah, it's um it's an important episode because not only is it everything that you're saying but it also pushes character forward, which is important. Mm-hmm. Like I could see this being like a theme that maybe they put on the whiteboard like in the summer when they were like, what themes do we want to cover mm-hmm. this season? Not necessarily knowing maybe where in the episodes that they go. Um, we love Miles and Murphy's relationship. Like I'm rewatching Mad Men and it feels like Peggy and Don, not in the sense yeah. of like the same relationship, but just like being a core important part of the series through the entire run. Yeah. I also find it very this is just a small observation, but watching the difference in Jim's response to being replaced by a younger, younger man when he's in his position of authority versus being replaced by someone who crosses a picket line. Jim doesn't have the same insecurity or or anxiety about being replaced in a scenario like this because he's standing in his ethics and morals and standing up for what he believes in, as opposed to being replaced by a younger, hipper man, because he's been considered irrelevant. And speaking of replacing, I think also just going back to Grant's performance in the show and the importance of Miles and Murphy's relationship, that when Grant left, there was such a huge hole that the only person that they could replace Grant with was someone who people already had a huge devotion to and a perhaps biased 
right? Like they already had a relationship mm-hmm. with that they wouldn't then discount anyone who replaced Miles because they missed Miles and loved him so much. So what do you do? You get a yep. legend. You get Lily Tomlin. Yep. I remember when that was announced, I was like, oh, this is genius. Mm-hmm. This is the only way we're going to accept someone because no matter how great they are, they're just not going to be Miles and the hole is going to be so big we're going to be upset that they're gone. But we already love Lily and Lily is fantastic and so we are accepting of this replacement. Mm-hmm. But thank you for joining us. We're really now going into the stretch of like banger season three episodes, just like back to back to back. I think us saying, I wasn't expecting much of this episode and it really positively surprised me. You're not going to hear that for a long time. No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've, I think we had a lot of those in these first couple seasons for obvious reasons because the show was newer and also we don't know them as well. It ends today. I want predictions from all of you for when you think we're going to say that again, because <laughs> I think it's going to be a while. Yep. It's the good stuff now. And, and now we're now getting into the territory that I'm sorry that um, I may still have some of the next episodes memorized. I never apologize to me about that. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's why I love you and why we're doing this together. It's going to be great. We're going to be insufferable. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> um, Y'all are so welcome. But- As a transition, that may make the Patreon even more fun because there's going to be a lot of stuff we're going to cut. We're going to have a lot of extras. We're going to have a lot of extras because we're going to love talking about this. Thank you for listening, friends. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please show us your support by liking, subscribing, and interacting with us on social media. Our handle everywhere is at MurphyBrownPod. You can also email us at MurphyBrownPod at gmail.com or visit our website at MurphyBrownPod.com. Share us with your friends. Give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast by checking out our Patreon. You can donate once or be a recurring subscriber and access exclusive deep dives on Murphy Brown and other related topics, as well as bonus content we had to cut for time. 100% of what you donate goes toward creating this podcast. So any way you are able to support, we deeply appreciate. And we'll see you next time for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Murphy Brown Podcast.